Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary. This week I spoke with the great Tony Robbins. Tony Robbins is an entrepreneur, best-selling author, philanthropist and business strategist. Over the past four decades, he's empowered more than 50 million people worldwide through his business and personal development coaching programs and events. His new book, Life Force, How New Breakthroughs in Precision Medicine Can Transform the Quality of Your Life and Those You Love is out now. All right, Jen. Hey. <laughs> what have you been doing? I've been working. You ain't been, have you? Uh, yeah, I've been very productive. Hard? Actually, yeah, I'm getting working even harder. Or even harder? Yeah. What, are you being more productive? Yeah, I really need to get a hobby, I think. What would you do? <laughs> I know, my sister wants me to put up a notice in a coffee shop and say I want a swimming buddy. I oh. felt very, that was very specific and prescribed that I didn't How particularly take it. Don't like that. Don't like it when people tell me what to do. Like no that. one likes being told what to do. No one in the world. That's why we need libertarian anarchist societies. <laughs> That's what we need, Jen. <laughs> but my sister really wants me to do that. I want you to as well. And I think you should. <laughs> so part of a sign where in the coffee shop. Wanted. I found a really nice new coffee shop, it's not new. In Lowestoft? Yeah, it's in a place called Oaten Broad. Oaten Broad. Come on, if you want to go swimming with Jen, where are you yeah. going? In the sea? Are you going at the moment? No, because I just... My wife's going to get out. Yeah, but I'm, not, I'm on my own. I could just not leave the house. Get out and go swimming. <laughs> it's cold. Will you wear a wetsuit or a I've swimsuit? I've got one of those uh, top wetsuits, but not bottom wetsuits. Like where it's like shorts and the sleeves. No, I don't have the shorts. I just have the top long sleeves. And then just some pants, sort of like well, bikini, bikini bottoms. pants. Yeah. <laughs> some like an old man's yellow Not pants. Not you, going in your pants all the time. I do do that, do you I? You never go... Do you even own swimming stuff? Yeah, I've got this pair. I've got a green pair. Just one pair? No, I've got a blue pair. I'm not sure I like them so much. <laughs> what brand are they? They might be a good brand. Certainly the toggles have got metal on the end. What? Well, you know the toggle, that drawstring. Oh, <laughs> Why have you got a problem with a toggle? <laughs> the toggle? What's wrong with that word? <laughs> never heard anyone say the toggle. It's called the toggle. Is it? Yeah, I, look, I wish I could be your swimming buddy. If you want, right. Okay, you know, did you know we're doing a team retreat at the end of May? And you can ask whatever you want to be included. No, I was going to say something mean. Go on then. Ask not to be included. <laughs> well, it's not mandatory, Jen. But what if it's nice? What if you got, um, is it? Well, it should be. No, it's not. I, it's a bit mandatory. <laughs> but I will be personally offended, I suppose. So it's a bit mandatory, yeah. You going to come? What is it? Well, I don't know. I mean, obviously, we do things like that you would obviously do, like yoga or meditation, but we could do things that you actually want to do as well. Jet skis. Huh? Jet, jet skis? Yeah. <laughs> How much fun would that be? Imagine jet we're just skis. bombing around on jet skis. Though I know that jet you skis, were Jane. in that film when you were on a jet ski and got hit. <laughs> Hold on. What? Have I been? I've not been on that's, a jet ski. That's, that's, that's like one of the lines everyone quotes to you from forgetting Sarah Marshall. What's that? Are you from London? Because yeah, you got hit not... by a jet ski and there's a bit of coral in your leg. <laughs> I got hit by a jet ski. <laughs> I know it's not real. But they but must I not really have filmed that. that bit. That must have been someone else that done that. Oh. I must have someone else. So jet skis. Yeah, all right, we'll do that. that there's a place good. near here that does them, I think. So that's also oh, the retreat. You want here. jet skis? Yeah. All right. We'll Isn't that be good? They're dangerous, do, Jen. I things. actually once got a bit of coral in my leg. <laughs> you could tie people to the back and then you could just fly or ski. All right. All right, Jen. We'll, well do what jet else is everyone doing? Just sitting around thinking or not thinking? <laughs> you don't have to sit around thinking. You don't have to sit around thinking, Jen. It's not only do you think that life is, but the two options for life are sitting around thinking or being on a jet ski. Yeah. Sometimes I see people pass my window on jet skis because I live by the sea. Why don't you join in with them instead of looking for a city buddy? 
I mean, a They'd swimming buddy. Buy a jet ski. <laughs> no, they, they, they let you have a go, won't they? <laughs> I don't know who they are. Find out where they sit off from. You need to find. You need to find the pier or harbour where they're launching from, Jen. It's obvious, <laughs> isn't it? It's Lon- obvious. Launching from. They're, find <laughs> their launch point, Jen. I can't do everything for you, Jen. Listen to shout outs. Sophie Joe Meesum, I just downloaded Luminary after months of deliberation. Come on, mate. I'd like to thank you and your team for adding great value to my life. Fantastic. Keep it up. Guy Hagen, I just want to say thank you for the emails. They're always a delight to receive. I watch Russell a lot online and listen to his podcast. It helps me recover. Also, his one with Ricky Gervais was priceless. Two very learned men. Learned, son. It's pronounced learned. Talking about the big issues casually and intelligently. Best wishes to you. You're a great team. Except for that Irish woman. I'm one year and ten days sober today. Yippee. That's nice. Come and see me on tour. Come particularly and see me in Plymouth, Bristol, Newcastle, Glasgow. Have a, There's a link. Uh, you know, there's always a link. There's a link. Come, go on RussellBrand.com. Get tickets. Come see me. The shows are fantastic. I'm already on tour. I'm doing the dates. I'm loving them. I'm enjoying them. There's opportunity to win merchandise. The merchandise goes to a good cause. Everything you want from life will be fulfilled. Go RussellBrand.com. Make sure you sign up to my mailing list like Guy just said it's fantastic and check out my YouTube channel for all of the great stuff this is I spoke to Tony Robbins in this episode and Tony's going to teach us a whole bunch of stuff as always my Tony who I absolutely love as you know why don't you like it when he I tell remembered people, me hey Jeremy he said Did nice he? to see you again but then I thought was he well he's this guy's a master of human communication yeah. I was like I know what you're doing well he, he nice. <laughs> made me love him I absolutely yeah. love him yeah. I love him yeah so there you go. He looked great. He looked younger. He's 62. I was looking at bits, right? And I was thinking, hold on a minute. You look younger than I do, I think. He looked younger than the last time we saw him. These stem cells work. I'm getting them. Yeah, me too. I don't Should know what find out where they are. I I'm did gonna... Google them today. He's got obviously got access. I'm going to get my it's dog 2, on him. 2,000 pounds to get your knee done. 2,000? Yeah. For your knee? Yeah. Well, oh, it's a bit expensive. Can we get a discount? One knee. No. We... I don't think so. We must be. Able Why to would they give time. you a discount, Tony? <laughs> All right, let's try and get a discount. I want to get my dog living a lot longer, so I can't live without him. I love him too much. Uh oh. Stem cells. Let's all get on the stem cells. <laughs> How old is Barry? Six. Okay, it's fine. It's, it's time. Plenty <laughs> of time. Let's get him on the stem cells. Get me and you on the stem cells, Jen. We'll be superhuman in <laughs> yeah. no time at all. Yeah, that'd be good. All right, let's listen to the great Tony Robbins, um, who I adore, who's a great teacher whose new book I'm actually reading, a lot of the things I've, like when he was saying them, I knew him because I've read them. In his book? Yeah, I've read it. Good. <laughs> well, I hardly ever read things, do I? Know. I? Even with the people I love, like Robert McFarlane. Don't, tell, don't say that. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> actually, I do read them. I thought you'd read Robert McFarlane. You kept quoting bits. Was that just what oh, no, you I was reading on? Robert McFarlane. <laughs> Underland. Yeah. He's an exceptional writer. All right, let's just put Tony Robbins on. (laughs) Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not a successful route. Yes, that's that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? Welcome to Russell Brand. Under the Skin. Tony, thank you so much for joining me on Under the Skin. 
Oh, it's wonderful to see you, Russell. We're here to talk about, to some degree, your new book, Life Force, which I've read some of and am enjoying. You talk, of course, as we are accustomed to hearing from you about the importance of our mental perspective and our attitude and how that affects health almost at a molecular level. Also about uh, uh, reams of scientific discoveries that may be impacting uh, the lives of lots of people people now that they're going to become increasingly accessible why this book why this book now why this book at a time where health and medicine are becoming dominant in ways that perhaps we've never encountered before tony well uh, i'd love to say i had this beautiful timing all set up but it didn't work that way i think you know for most of my life uh, you know 45 years i've been obsessed with the question of how do you increase the quality of life for people and there's only a few areas that really make a difference in your life your body of course your emotions your relationship your finances your career or your business and of course the spiritual side of life and you know when 2008 happened i think you know russell i i really went all in to help people on the finance side and i did it by saying let me interview 50 of the smartest financial people in the world and see what they do and see if I can simplify it. And I wrote two number one New York Times bestsellers out of it. But you know, there's an old Indian phrase that says, a person with health has a million dreams, a person without it has one. And, um, and I had an experience that also magnified it. I was already a biohacker. I think you know that because of what I do with my seminars. I had to, I'm on stage 12 to 13 hours, four days in a row, seven days in a row with 10 to 20,000 people. And so you got to hold people's attention. They won't sit for a three-hour movie. So I use my body in pretty intense ways. And so I've had to always improve it. And as the years have gone by, I've developed all kinds of great tools and found great tools. But a few years ago, before I wrote this book, I was being an idiot. I was pretending I was a 14-year-old chasing this great snowboarder who's like 20 years old down the mountainside. And uh, he could do things I clearly couldn't do. And I had, I thought it broke my neck. I had the worst wreck you could imagine. I tore all my rotator cuffs and I was in you know, pain on a nine, nine level on a zero to 10 scale. And so I, I went immediately, obviously I couldn't sleep even an hour a night. And so it made me find things. I found something called pulse electronic magnetic frequency, PEMF, big words, but it's got 3000 studies and it helped start to heal this, but it also took the pain from nine, nine to a five so I could actually sleep. But then, you know, I went to all these guys and every doctor, surgery, surgery, surgery. Okay, well, tell me, how's that work? Well, you're going to, you know, you may not be able to lift your shoulder, you know, arm above your shoulder again. I'm like, what? Um, you know, might tear again. It'll take four to six months probably for rehab. And I can't be having one arm you know, do what I'm doing. So it's, I heard about stem cells and I heard a mixed review. Some people said, great. Some people said, ah, it's all a bunch of BS. So I dug in deep. And I went to Peter Diamandis, who's, you know, he's a rocket scientist, but he's also an MD from Harvard. He's a good friend of mine and partner in some of my businesses. And I said, you know, everybody, who's the best to talk about this with? And he said, you got to go see Bob Harari, Dr. Harari. And he's a neurosurgeon, one of the best in the world. I said, well, I know Bob, he's spectacular, but what about stem cells? And it turned out Bob, at 38 years ago, is one of the fathers of stem cells. He did those original studies you probably heard about where they took old rats and gave them young rats blood and their muscles changed, their hair went dark again, and then vice versa. In other words, the old rats got young, and they took the old rats' blood and put the young rats, and they got older. And so that started the whole thing in Silicon Valley about young blood and so forth, but that also caused them to discover what was really making it happen, which was stem cells. So Bob told me, listen, your, your stem cells, you don't want to use your own. Once you drop, hit about 40, they drop off the cliff. He said, you really need allergenic stem cells, which is a fancy word for cells that come from someone else. But he said, Tony, you want 
stem cells with the force of life. You want four-day-old stem cells. And I said, I'm not into fetal tissue under any circumstance. He goes, no, no, no. He said, we're talking about cord or placenta. He said, they're, you know, babies are born and we th used to throw them away. People still throw them away. And he told me where to go. And all I got was an IV and a shot for three days in a row. And Russell, the first day, I just felt tired. And they told me that might happen, of course. The second day, oh, I left out a really important piece. The last doctor I met with, he was a really wonderful guy. And then all of a sudden, after this wonderful niceties, he looks at me, he brings out a you know a piece of my spine, shows it on the screen and says, life as you know it is over. I said, what are you talking about? He goes, forget what you're doing in your career. There's no more jumping. There's no running. There's certainly no snowboarding. He said, one good hit and you won't be able to walk again. And you know, when somebody hits you in the stomach and you're ready for it, it's one thing, but I got to tell you, honestly, it took me down a bit. And so I went down to these stem cells on day two, I woke up, my shoulder was perfect. I've had the MRI since then, of course, which is perfect. But the best thing was after 14 years of pain in my spine, I stood up with no pain in my spine for the first time. And so I became obsessed. And I actually saw you right before about three years ago, I got invited to the Vatican. I, I came and did your podcast or we did that podcast where you did mine as well. And I left you to go to the Vatican. And it was a step in know, the wrong three... direction, a little less holy. <laughs> but I, I there's a three day conference. They asked me if I would do the cleanup speaker. But I was like, man, I'm not going to just go speak. I want to go attend all these classes. So I went through them all and I met like the 11 year old boy at four years old taught he had a six percent chance to live. But his sister stem cells saved him and he's totally healed. I saw people that have been sent home to die who wouldn't give up. And so they did, you know, different forms of stem cells or other forms of treatments, because it's not just stem cells now. So as a result of that, I said, I wanna, I wanna get this out to people. And as a result of that, I started working on this book. So it's been a three-year project. And I'm so excited because there's breakthroughs that we'll be able to talk about here that people can access right now that will change people's lives like they can't imagine. Because there's this, you know, the same kind of technological changes, Russell, that took us, you know, where a microchip used to have 4,000, you know, transistors in it. They were a buck each, it was $4,000. Now you get 6 trillion in a microchip, right? And they cost less than a, a piece of a penny. And it's, so it's 6,300 times more powerful. It's 4.2 million times cheaper. Well, that's what's happening to our health because we're all code, right? So I'm sure you've heard about CRISPR and gene editing. So I've been exposed to all of it, and I decided to write a book that could show you how to increase your energy, your strength, your vitality, if you're a peak performer or you're someone at home just wants to feel good, but also if you're in trouble. What are the breakthroughs that are happening in cancer? What are the, what's happening with heart disease? What's happening with Alzheimer's? And I put it all together, and I did it the way I did Money Master the Game. I interviewed 150 Nobel laureates, scientists, top regenerative medicine doctors in the world. And so nothing in it's my opinion. It's all their work. I'm just bringing it to people. And then I'm donating, just like I did my last three books, 100% of the profits. So millions of dollars are going. We're going to feed 20 million people through Feeding America. And then the balance of the profits are going to do Alzheimer's cancer and heart disease research with three of the top researchers in the world. It sounds like what's happening is in the fields of anatomy and biochemistry, there's a, a sort of a pivotal moment that aligns it with technology. But Tony, yes. how come this won't pass through the usual um, commercial filters that mean that it remains inaccessible to all but the most wealthy individuals? When will this become something like me? 
I'm like a relatively wealthy individual and I'm already thinking, oh, right, wow, stem cells, I'm going to sort my knees out. This will be fantastic. I'm in my 40s, mid-40s. You know, I want to be healthy and strong. Yeah. But in the back of my mind, I feel like, okay, though, but what about people who really, really need this, not for sort of like the privilege of great health, but actually for vital stuff? Is it not going to be sort of ring-fenced in sort of in a commercial place that many people can't reach? No, you, you'll find it really surprising. I mean, I'm old enough to remember when I had one of the original cell phones and it was, you know, a foot long, two pounds. It costs 4,000 bucks. That'd be like $10,000 in today's money. You charged it for six hours so you get 30 minutes of talk time. And so wealthy people bought it or people that really wanted a cell phone. But what that does is it brings the price down rapidly. I'm sure you know the S-curve that's taught about what happens in business. It's already happening even with stem cells. When I did my treatment four years ago, the cost of it uh, was expensive, but it was less than the surgery. And so, and I got healed in four days without surgery. So for me, it was not that big a decision, but I just recently went just from so for rejuvenation and it cost half as much. So you can do like, if you've got an elbow or a knee or something like that, it's less than the price of a laptop, two or $3,000, which, you know, plenty of other therapies cost that much or more today. If you have something more significant, it might be seven, eight, nine, or 10, but the surgery is almost twice that. So, it, it, and what's really nice is some of these things are already with insurance. So I'll, I'll give you some examples. Um, this is mind boggling. I just recently went and saw this. There is a new thing called incisionless brain surgery. It sounds crazy, but for people with Parkinson's or the tremors, I went to watch this woman. She couldn't walk across the room. They use super powered ultrasound. It takes them about an hour to find the spot in your brain that's creating the tremors. So lady's on 15 medications, cannot walk across the room, literally shaking like this. I don't know if you've ever seen anybody get those audio implants for the first time and they hear and they start crying, it's so emotional. Well, this lady, when she stepped up, and this is an outpatient service, you don't go to the hospital for it. She gets up, walks across the room, she can't believe it. She picks up a glass for the first time, just drinks it. Last week, she just did a 50 mile bike ride two years after the initial treatment that she did. So, and this is covered by insurance in the United States and it's starting to happen anywhere because it's cheaper than the drug therapies that go on and on and on. And it's a result that's documented. So everything you can imagine, but I'll tell you some of the most important ones and they're not expensive. The one of the most important ones is diagnosis. So let's talk about the big scares that people have. I love talking about performance, but let's start where most people live. Cause when I wrote this book, I went in and did all these surveys of different age groups. And I was blown away to see how many people in their thirties and forties are worried about cancer. I couldn't believe it's like 80% or Alzheimer's probably cause they have a parent or a grandparent who's going through it. So cancer, this is what's really interesting. Every person in this book, these incredible doctors and scientists who created these breakthroughs, virtually everyone lost somebody to the disease they studied. They lost a husband or a wife or a super close friend or a child, and it pushed them to break through. So there, you know, in cancer, the biggest problem we have is, you know, the National Cancer Society describes that if you get cancer and you find it at stage three or four, your chances of dying are about 80%. Now, 20% don't, that's the one I'd be counting on, but that's what they teach. If you catch it at stage one or two, it's between 80 and 99.9% .9 chance that you survive. In fact, you catch it early, it's an outpatient thing, it's no big deal. So why do most people die? Well, we have mammograms, colonoscopies and so forth, but we only have about a half dozen cancers. This new blood test, this man lost his wife, he worked with Google, he was a genius, and he created a blood test, it's called GRAIL. It's available right now, it's just come out. 
50 different cancers it'll search for and catches them before you have any symptoms whatsoever. So when you combine an MRI, which is common, with this blood test, you literally can know what's going in your body with absolute precision. I'll give you another one. Heart disease. Heart disease is the number one killer in the world of both men and women, right? And so what do we use? Well, we use a CT scan. Some people have had, we go see their doctor. I've had those. And one day, one of my partners about six months ago calls me and says, Tony, he goes, there has been a breakthrough, the biggest breakthrough in cardiology in the last 10 years. I said, that's a big claim. What is it? He said, Tony, you know, when people try to read a CD, CT scan and they're looking to see, you know, the plaque buildup in your body, the calcium buildup. He said, but they can't tell the difference on that grade off scale of the CT scan. How much is hardened plaque, which means you're healthy versus soft plaque, which can break off and give you a heart attack or a stroke. And he said, so this new AI, it's brand new takes your CT scan and it digitally opens up every artery in your body, goes through it and looks and measures, is this hardened calcium, which means you're totally healthy and fine, or is it soft? I said, I'm in, I'm gonna come do the test, why not? Why not? No, because they can predict a heart attack five years in advance and show what to do to prevent it. So my father-in-law, Sage's daddy was here and he was visiting and I said, dad, he's, you know, almost, he was just about to turn 80 years old and people around him start telling him, you know, you got to arrange your affairs and he's a healthy guy, but you don't know how healthy you are. And he's worried. And so I said, dad, I said, why don't you come with me? I told him what I was going to do. I said, we're both at a stage of life. We're going to have some soft plaques, but they'll tell us what it is and they'll give us a score and they'll show us what to do. So he agreed. So we, we fly down to the center here in Florida that we have. And it was the best experience because my father-in-law who was used to be like a lumberjack in his own lumber business. He's clean as a whistle. He has not one problem. Everything is hardened. Is, is, he has zero concern. He's got a heart like, you know, like a 25-year-old. And so it completely changes perspective. And while we're there, we have this treatment that I've had that's been done for a lot of world's greatest athletes where the team will scan you with ultrasound. Like I had an ankle you know, that I twisted and broke at one time years ago. But the nerves are always so sensitive that for years, if someone, you know, came like even a masseuse to touch it, don't touch it, it'd be like electric shock the nerves are so sensitive. They go in, they found out what the problem was, five minutes, they inject amniofluid, same thing you were born with inside your mother's womb. It opens up the fluid in the nerve, you hear like a little pop, and I'm no, I can smack it and I'm no pain. Well, my dad had a hip problem. And you know, when you get, now you're 80 years old and people tell you're older and then you can't walk right, you know, your mind starts to take over. So they did his hip in 20 minutes. He's walking perfectly smooth. We get on the plane, this is my favorite moment, right? Because I love him so much. And he says, uh, he sits down, he goes, you know, Tony, those people talk about living 110, 120. He goes, I don't know about that crap, but he goes, you know, my heart's perfect. My hip's perfect. I can live another 20 years. He goes, that's like another lifetime. You've only been married to my daughter 22 years. And he's completely changed his perspective. So these are not super expensive things. These are things that more and more will be covered by insurance. Some of them are now, some aren't, but they're, it's your life. Mm -hmm. And to know what's happening in advance is so priceless. So I see what's happened is like that there's a coalescence of various technologies and diagnostic methods that you have compiled into a compendium in your book, Life Force, working with a team of global experts to distill this information as you do so well always in a manner that's accessible and understandable to pre present solutions to some of the biggest health problems that there are in the world, in addition to stuff that's less serious, but also bloody inconvenient and it's accessible. I suppose then if the if the barriers tony are not 
financial. Are you suggesting that there's some sort of ideological or institutional barrier to these treatments that prevent them being accessed? Well, in traditional, think of it this way, in traditional medicine, uh, everything is slow. Uh, you know, there was a study done at Harvard in 2017, and they showed something fascinating, that the half-life of a medical education was between 18 and 24 months, and they projected by 2022, now, it would be 73 days. That means whatever you learned in your entire medical school, half of it is worthless within 16 to 18, you know, 18 to 24 months. They're saying 73 days now, but let's even keep the longer period. So now who educates them? The pharmaceutical salesman, that's who does the education. That's how we end up with opioids because the pharmaceutical people lied. Can you imagine me in a doctor who's so committed to helping people and you find out you prescribed a drug that then caused someone to become addicted or die? And this unfortunately happens more often than you can imagine. But it's like when I want to do my stem cells, every one of the doctors said, oh, they don't work, they're worthless, don't, doesn't matter. And, but you know, I talked to the doctors that are specialists in regeneration, and they said, no, no, some are worthless. Let me show you which ones are the right ones to do. Let me show you how to do it. And that's what I try to do for people in the book is show them what's there. But it's also, I want to take away fear because, you know, Russell, I, you know, a lot of people think I'm indestructible because I'm so passionate, intense, and crazy. And, you know, I have a, I have an incredible sense of calling to help people. It's been with me forever. I don't have to work on the day of my life, but I work harder now than ever. But it doesn't come because I'm so indestructible. It comes because I've been through so much pain and I, I don't want anybody else to suffer. And I, I can remember when I started my career, early on I was working 18, 20 hour days. And then I got these breaks. I got to work with these great athletes and I turned them around, you know, Andre Agassi and people like, and they gave me tremendous credit, Bill Clinton, the president of the United States. And so at a really young age, I had all the success and there's a part of our brain. And I know, you know, it. we all know it as humans. It's that survival part, you know, and I didn't know how to manage it well back then. And so this idea got stuck in my head that I, maybe I got all the success because I'm going to die young. Not I work my ass off <laughs> and I've got good grace in my life or whatever it is. And I didn't think about like, I'm going to just be hit by a truck and disappear. I had these nightmares of dying of cancer slowly wilting away. And of course, whatever you focus on enough, it enters your life. So first time in my life as a tumor wasn't me. It was literally, I was 20 years old, maybe 19. And my girlfriend at the time comes in crying uncontrollably. I'm like, what is it? What is it? Because my mother, my mother, and finally she said she has cancer. And then she said, they told her she's terminal. She has nine weeks to live. And if it had been me, I don't know if I would have had the same resolution. But, you know, most of us will do more for people we love than we'll do for ourselves. And my whole thing that there's always an answer kicked in. And I said, stop this. I said, there are people who've had stage four cancer and recovered all over the world. We need to find out what they did. We're going to study that. We're not going to just sit here and let her die. And so I did what I do best, like, just like I've done this book. I, I'm a massive researcher. I go to the sources. And I found a book back then called One Answer to Cancer. And it's not the book I'd recommend today because there's so many better ones. But it was written by this dentist who uh, was told he had six weeks to live. He had pancreatic cancer, which is one of the most deadly, of course. And he did this system to detoxify his body. And he took pancreatic enzymes. Anyway, 15 years later, he's healthy and no cancer. So I said, listen, they're telling you going to die read this book and see if this interests you. And then I gave as a man think of just to help her manage her head, her mind and her emotions. And she went for it. So in about two weeks, she actually felt better sizably. So like she felt like she had more energy. And you know, she had a tumor on the back of her shoulder that was protruding out. And then she had one inner feminine organs. And that's why they sent her home to die it was spreading. And after 10 weeks, she was still alive. She was to die in nine weeks. 
Her doctor turns to her, she's in her early 40s, and says, well, let's do exploratory surgery, see what's going on. And she came to me and said, should I do it or not? You know, I'm a 19-year-old kid at the time. I was like, you have to make that decision, not me. But I, was, I don't know if I'd do it. I mean, you're doing well, why not? But he convinced her. And all they found in her entire body was something, a little piece of tumor the size of the end of my pinky. I mean, it was like ridiculous. And the doctor said, this is a miracle. And she said, it is a miracle, but let me tell you what I did. He goes, no, 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 this is a miracle. I don't want to hear what you did. Spontaneous remission. So she was in her 40s. Now she's in her 80s. She's still alive today. And that's what changed me. It took me from fear of these diseases to saying, I'm going to make my body a temple. I'm going to figure out how to make it a performance machine. And you know, you've been to my events. So it's like they've measured me. The same guys that do Tom Brady and Olympic athletes have made me wore this device and they measure me for 12 hours a day, actually nine hours. The battery died on this $70,000 device and I kept going another three hours, but they found they've done it for me for three years. I burn an average of 11,300 calories on stage in just one day. It's the equivalent of two marathons to give you an idea or two NBA basketball games back to back without a break. I jump a thousand times and they explain to me, I weigh 282 pounds. So every time you come down, it's four times your body weight. So imagine a thousand jumps times a thousand pounds. That's a million pounds of pressure in your body in one day on stage. And when they did my bone density, they go, these are humans. These are Olympic athletes. This is something we've never measured before, which is my bone density from that demand. You know, my lactic acid, if you've ever gone for a jog or a run with a friend and you get where well, you can't talk because your lactic acid has hit four, I'm still speaking at 18. So I used all this to be able to perform like this. And then tumor shows up in my life. And this is now I'm 32 years old. And I'm now really, you know, I have a different mindset because of Jenny, what happened with her years before, 12, 13 years before. But I went, I'm a helicopter pilot. And so I went to renew my license in America. You have to get a new physical every two years. So I went for a normal physical and then I left. And then the guy kept calling and my assistant said, doctor wants to talk to you. I said, please just tell him, send the report, right? I'm too busy. And then I come home one night and there's a note stapled to my door saying, it's an emergency. The doctor says you have to call him tonight. Well, they thought I was going to go home at six or seven. So I, now my old fear shows up. You know what I mean? It's like, oh my God. Is it cancer? I've taken such good care of my body. I work out, I train, eat well, but I'm in airplanes. Is it radiation? You know how the mind goes crazy. And so finally, it's like I, I had developed this center inside myself that a courageous man dies once, a coward a thousand times. So I shut it off, went to bed, woke up with total foreboding, called him up and he goes, you have a tumor in your brain. I said, what? He said, a tumor at the base of your brain, it's your pituitary gland. I said, how could you possibly know that? He said, I did a special blood test on you because I thought you have a lot of growth hormone. I said, well, how'd you figure that out? You know, I got hands bigger than your head. I'm six, seven. I was five, one my sophomore year in high school. I grew 10 inches in a year. I got a size 16 chew. So I said, obviously I've got growth hormone. He goes, so I think you have gigantism. And he didn't have a good bedside manner. And I said, well, what, let's say I did this. What are the side effects? And he said, well, I have to tell you, you could die, but the most common one is your endocrine system will never be the same. So you won't have a lot of energy. And I said, well, that's my life. And I said, you know, I got to get a second opinion because, you know, now there's lots of studies on this. Well, the latest one was in 2017 also from the Mayo Clinic. And here's what they found on second opinions. They tell everyone to get a second opinion, even from their doctors. And the reason is 286 clients, uh, patients, they went and saw and found that 12% of the time, the first and second diagnosis of two different people were the same. That means 88% of the time they were different. And that by getting multiples, they refined the diagnosis and found out something better. So 
even before that study, I'd seen this. So I was like, I got to get a second opinion. So I went to, here's a surgeon wants to cut me. So I said, I'm going to neurobiologist, you know, a gentleman who was over in uh, Boston. And he was completely different. He was super nice man. And he said, listen, Tony, you definitely have the tumor in there. It's infarct a bit. It's swallowed a part of itself up, but it's still pushing growth hormone. And he said, you'd be crazy to do surgery because he said you could die and all those side effects. He goes, I think you should go to Switzerland twice a year and get an injection that keeps your heart valves from getting bigger, which is what kills you with gigantism. And I said, well, but my heart valves aren't bigger. He said, yes, but then you'll have certainty. I said, but couldn't the drug have side effects? He goes, well, anything's possible, but it's highly unlikely. And I said, well, what if I did nothing? I said, you know, this guy wants to cut me. He goes, yeah, he goes, the baker wants to bake. The surgeon wants to cut. He goes, I want to drug you. That's what I do. He said, and he was really just the nicest, sweetest man. He said, I guess you could do that as long as you measure. And if you see a change, then you could do something. But wouldn't you rather just forget about it? And thank God I didn't do it because six months later, the drug was only in Switzerland. They did not allow it to come to the U.S. because they found it created cancer. I went to six other doctors, the end of the story. And the last one says to me, Tony, you have a huge amount of growth hormone. No question. The tumor's in there. He said, but Tony, you recover. You run two marathons a day, four days in a row. Your recovery two days later, three days later, he said, I can't explain it except your body's tissues are healing from this growth hormone. And he said, I know bodybuilders that pay $1,200 a month to try and get what you get for free. So that was when I'm 32. I'm now 62 in a couple of weeks. And so in 30 years, I've had no challenge. I've measured it every year, but it changed my mindset. And it didn't make me disrespect the doctors. It made me respect them more. I just wanted to find specialists answering your question. You got to go people that's there specially. Otherwise, they just poo-poo everything because they only know what they know. And they, their education is quite limited in terms of its length. But I try to explain to people, docs are like, um, like if you're walking down the street and there's a river beside you and suddenly you hear someone screaming, the doc's the first one to jump in, not think about their own life, pull the person in, give them mouth and mouth, save their life. But as soon as they do, they hear two more screams and they save the first one, save the second one. And then there's four more screams. So they don't have time to go upstream and see who's throwing them in. So I'm dealing with the doctors that have gone upstream and seeing who's throwing them in and figuring out what to do. And it's just like anything else in life. If you do what the average person does, you're going to get the average results, which in the health area is not terribly exciting. But if you go to the best, and that's what I've tried to do is give people access. They don't have to be wealthy. I've got access, so I'm bringing that to everybody, very much like I did with Money Master the Game on the financial side. Tony, I consider you um, more than a uh, mentor and a teacher, in case anyone listens to this doesn't know already, even though we'll have probably said it in the introduction, which I'll subsequently record, I love you and I admire you. I love you too, brother. Thank you very much. Now, like I said, this book, I feel like that you're like a reality expert, that whenever you turn your mind and your attention to something, whether it's like polo, you become a polo expert in a week, or if it's, you know, dealing spontaneously with the uh, the crisis of 9-11 on one of your retreats, one of the stories that's in this book, then you handle that perfectly. So I would recommend this book to anybody who's interested in their own health or the health of others. And I've got like a, a range of inquiries that sort of travel uh, that, that, that um, are between like the most personal and like I want it for myself and even frankly, my dog. I want stem cell research so that my dog can live forever. And so they that actually I- have a new company that makes your dog live longer using some of the things they can't give humans yet. It's in the book, believe it or not. It's from uh, the top geneticist at Harvard because he loves his dog so much. 
he put the focus there first. He could get approval there first. But the work they're doing with dogs is going to be done with humans over the next three years. It's so there's things there for your animals too, believe it or not. Good. Well, I mean, that's the first. That's probably the first thing that I'll be doing because you know when you look at this, it's uh, like the topics covered in your book. You obviously bring us to the inevitable, ineluctable, unavoidable conclusion that the most important thing is life itself, the machinery of our body. Now, when I was reading the book, I've you know I've, as I said to you, I've read like the beginning and the end of the book. I was yes. struck as I am again because I've attended your events, as you've said. I've read a lot of your material, and I'm a, a, a beyond as I say beyond a fan of your work. I'm I believe very very strongly in what you do and thank you. i thank you and i i feel like there's um like that you're a, sh a, a sort of well not sort of you are a shaman of our time and the conventional journey <laughs> of the shaman is personal destruction and putting yourself back together again when you talk as you do sort of consistently about the uh poverty of your early life and some of the sort of neglect and abuse even though you're always very careful to frame it in a way that is um compassionate to the people that were involved like your uh, your mother of course and the her, her various partners father figures or fathers however you term it you're very compassionate about that and even i hear when you're talking about the medical profession that you're very diligent to um avoid blaming language around the medical profession you know with your analogy there of rescuing people from a river and the amount of pressure that they're operating under yes, i wonder i wonder how when you're when you're looking at the world now given that you know if you turn your attention to world finance an incredibly complex world you're able to utilize um teachers and experts and when you turn your mind to health you're able to do the same thing i i'm interested in what you feel tony about what's happening in the world now from both a um a political perspective without any particular deliberate focus on the pandemic and the nature of the pandemic i mean more broadly that we seem to be living in a time where there's a sense of deep mistrust in and suspicion around media the government big business that there's a lot of uh, conflict and difficulty part of what you do is very personal and very spiritual part of what you do is like it's like dealing with this is reality this is how i see you i feel tony and forgive me if, if I'm, I'm simplifying or being reductive or even incorrect this is reality this is how to deal with reality i've sort of been inflicted with this condition of like how what's going on what how do we change that what's happening there how are these things intersecting in this way why is this happening and yes. i i wonder how you feel about that now i wonder like because the other thing and i'll mention it and you've sort of alluded it to yourself like, uh, yourself already that even by this peculiar accident which could have obviously gone different ways about this tumor by your pituitary gland you've become some sort of literal bionic person that can jump around <laughs> with dense bones for all eternity and that's why i feel sometimes like you know our mutual friend nick ortner the creator of the tapping solutions app who's like who yes. you kindly introduced me to and who i deeply love now as well like um you know, when we talk about you sometimes and I like go, like the thing is with Tony, he's an amazing person to have in your life as a mentor and as a role model because you feel like, oh, like I aspire to him. But whenever I'm doing something like walking the dog or like just sitting down or picking my nose, I think, oh God, Tony wouldn't do this. What am I doing to myself? <laughs> I find it like hard to picture you as this sort of lackluster adolescent that can't cope with life. It seems like, you know, that you've got this radiance and that you must have always had this radiance. So 
how do like firstly I, I guess you know i mean i know you like giving big answers so i'm not going to apologize for the breadth of the question how no, do I love it. how do normal people plug into this force and the source inside themselves of course we've covered this medical aspect but so much of it is about um reaching our essential nature and mobilizing it how do you personally see what's happening globally with the intersection of technologies the kind of hypnosis that seems to be occurring broadly and generally like that that's sapping people's energy and strength and will and how do you see uh, how the personal and political aspects of that combine and is it something that troubles you and that you have feelings about i'm a student of history and if you really study history you see that history has cycles and you know they run about every 80 years um I, you know, when I worked with President Bill Clinton years and years ago, he gave me a book that he was reading at the time. And I saw it on his desk and I asked about it. And he goes, it's one of the best books I've ever read. It was called Generations. It's a very big book, like 700, 800 pages. I guess my books are 700 pages. So, but it's, it's a big book, large book. And it studies the Anglo-American history um, over 500 years and shows the cycle between generations and how generations form a pattern. Because even though you and I might be raised individually different, Culturally, we go through patterns of how we react to our own upbringing and how we bring up our kids and then what occurs. And then they wrote, there's a book by the same authors. It's not an easy, a simple read. It's not a fun read, but it's one of the most valuable books I've ever read. And I read it, it was at a Barnes and Noble, you know, they have those places where the books that are on sale that they're throwing away. And I'm a contrarian. So I always look through those books because usually you'll find some gem in there that just isn't popular right now. And the book is called The Fourth Turning, and I highly recommend it to anyone who hasn't read it. And it shows that we go through these cycles in history. So think of it this way for a second, Russell. Let's, let's back up 30,000 feet. What makes anyone have power? You have a great power with your humor. Your language is unbelievable. When you leave messages, and I think if I could speak like that, I mean, you're like a poet. You're just unbelievable. It's, I feel like I, I just, I love your metaphors. I love the way you speak. But the point is, you know, pattern recognition, there's three patterns that make somebody powerful in anything, finance, business, entertainment, uh, parenting, health. The first one is pattern recognition. The ability to recognize patterns takes things from chaos, which is what this feels like right now, to saying, no, there's a pattern here. And if I understand the pattern, perhaps I can develop the second skill, which is learn how to use that pattern, not be used by it. Like, you know, stress is a pattern. You either use stress or stress uses you. Stress is going to be there. But if you can recognize it, learn to use it, it's a different piece. And then there is a third skill, which is pattern creation. That's what you do, Russell. That's what's made you so popular. Like you've used a combination of your entertainment and your intellect and your communication style. And you, you, have, you got four, what, four and a half million people that are following you here. I mean, you're up there. <laughs> You're above CNN by about four or five times. You're, you're above, you know, uh, Tucker Carlson, who's like one of the biggest here. You're not quite to Joe Rogan yet, but you're certainly moving in that direction. So it's like you've combined these patterns that you've learned over time to be able to get through to people in a unique way. But think of this way. The person who's great, you know, all the people I interviewed, they're billionaires. Started with nothing. I'm not, people, not talking about people who inherited it. You know, Ray Dalio, Carl Icahn, Warren Buffett. All of them got really good at recognizing patterns in markets and finance, and then they learned to use it, and then they learned to create patterns of their own that allowed them to take even greater advantage of the opportunities in front of them. So if you let's back up a second. When did humanity transform after thousands of years of being survivors, basically running around trying to scavenge for food, right, being hunter-gatherers? Well, it all changed with one pattern recognition, the one that changed humanity. 
was the recognition of the of the seasons. For the first time, we could stay in one place because we figured something out. If I plant in the winter, I'm screwed. It doesn't matter how hard I work. I got to plant in the springtime, and then I got to take care of things through the hot summer, and then I get to reap in the fall, and then I better hang on to some of that so I'm prepared for the next winter to survive. When that pattern was created, we built communities, and then eventually cities, and then states, and then countries, right? So it's one of the most important patterns, and what you learn from that pattern is, if you do the right thing at the wrong time, you're screwed. It doesn't matter how hard you work, right? If you, you got to do the right thing at the wrong right time. And so that means understanding patterns. Now there's a pattern in our lives. You know, I have a 48 year old daughter. I have five kids and five grandkids. So I have a 48 year old daughter and I have a 10 month daughter, old daughter as of yesterday, turned 10 months, right? That was one of the beautiful things about COVID. I said to my wife, let's give it one last shot. And it worked out. So it's such a beautiful gift. And I know you have two daughters as well. So I know you know what I'm talking about. But think about this. If we're going to see the stages of our life, there are seasons also. Think of zero to 20, 19, 20, 21 as the springtime. In springtime, you don't have to work about growth. Growth happens automatically. Growth happens rapidly. Growth happens easily. When you're a springtime economically, everybody is doing, you know, the world is easy to do well business wise finance wise whatever the case may be and these seasons can be found in history as well but start with a person so zero to 1921 20, around 1921 you become your own person now some people you know i had to work when i was 13 years old some people start sooner or later but overall that's the human experience so the first 20 years life is giving you education uh, teaching you what to believe and then you turn the stage and go now i'm going to decide what i believe i'm going to test this stuff that's 21 to 41, basically. That's the summertime. That's where you suddenly think, you know, you thought you're going to be president of the United States and a billionaire and have 14 husbands or wives. And now you find out you can't even keep a relationship together because you keep screwing shit up or you get addicted to a drug or, wow, I'm working my ass off, but I'm not financially free. I'm not far from it. I haven't figured this out. So you go from indestructible over those time periods to humbled. And if you're smart, you don't give up and you educate yourself and find answers. But most people in that stage start to give up. They give up on their dreams because they've been disappointed. They've been hurt. They've had people that you know have taken advantage of them. We've all been through that stage and it never goes away completely. You just hopefully get smarter, right? So now 41 or 42 to 62 is really considered the power stage. If you plant in the springtime, and you take care of it during the summer, that's when you have the chance to really have an impact and grow. That's when you become heads of companies or you have your own companies or you are the best in your entertainment. That's where your brand's like yours, Russell. I mean, last night I was trying to figure out where you were so I could reach out to you. I look up and I see you're performing, but I also see sold out. It was like, that's Russell. Of course he's sold out. In the middle of all this craziness, he's sold out because you have built that brand of who you are because you've delivered for those decades. Even when you're having troubles, even when you're dealing with your own demons, you still delivered for people. And so it gives you a different platform now that you're healthy and strong to do different things. And then imagine 62 or 63 to 83 is elderhood. And if you're lucky, that's, you know, you're, that's where you return back, right? You're, you're gonna go to the fall, think of the reaping time, 60, you know, in that 42, 62. Now it's winter time again, because your body's going to age, it's going to change. And if you're lucky, you get 82 to 102. I mean, the oldest living humans are 119. And in this, that's a stage of life where you get to really be a mentor. Now, some people do it earlier, but that's really, you want to give back. 
And then hopefully at the very end of your life, all the good you've done, people look out for you because then you get a bit aged and you might need some help. That's the human experience. Let me give a last example. History has seasons. And when you understand this, like a thousand years of Roman history, and you can see this like clockwork every 80 to 100 years, you see the same financial challenges, you see the same challenges internally, but here's what happens. If you think about it, I'll give you an example to make it easy. In America, we have a generation we call the greatest generation. They're the guys and ladies that went to World War II, fought and came back as the heroes. But let's back up a second and see what their life was really like. This is really important for anyone who's listening who's a millennial or a Z generation person right now, because so many people that are older look at them and they go, oh, they're wallflowers, or what's the word they use for them? You know, snowflakes. They melt down at anything. They want you know, protection. They're crying about something at the law school. Somebody said, you know, it's just, it, there's, there's not the respect. So think about this. If you were born in 1910, everybody just think of this for a second. World War I ended shortly after that. And if you were in America, it was like it was a great celebratory time, right? The Roaring Twenties began. And so you're heading into your teens and technology's coming out, cars, parties. It was a, it was a, unbelievable fall meaning a reaping time right after going through the hard summer right and so what occurred well winter hit but when did it hit well if you're born in 1910 when you're turning 19 and you're thinking you're going to have your life it was 1929 people are jumping out of buildings people in the midwest it was the dust bowl everything was destroyed world as we know it looked like it was going to end and it was a new season these seasons usually last about 20 years right and that new season began right when these kids entered that incredible important part of their life and they were before that seen as flappers they were seen the way a lot of people talk about millenniums or z generation now argues millennials that they're they're old now millennials are used to do that with boomers old boomer now they argue about parting their hair in the middle or on the side it's the silliest shit in the world they won't stay that way because when they went through that 10-year period and they made it to 29, they didn't get relief in 19, and when they're 29, it was 1939. World War II breaks out. Now, we weren't alive then, you and I, but anybody was will tell you, we were, look, looks like we're gonna lose. Your country was being bombed like crazy. Hitler was rolling across Europe. You know, all hell was breaking loose. It looked like life as we know it is over, but it wasn't. And what happened? These weak people that were called flappers and weak, and they went to war and the demand made them incredibly strong. And fortunately, they won the war and came back and became heroes. So what was it like after World War II in the late 40s, 50s to the early 60s before Kennedy was shot? It was a new springtime. Winter had gone 20 years, then we had almost 20 years of springtime. It was one of the best times in America that people remember. Now, not if you were African-American, not if you were maybe a woman as much, but for a segment of the population that was dominant, it was. But then what happens? You go 63 to 83 and you have Kennedy shot, you have King shot, you have Robert Kennedy shot. You have this total internal turmoil where young people and old people are fighting. This happens, by the way, if you read these books, it happens like a cycle. You can go back 80, 100 years and say the exact same cycle again. And then what happens? Then you get out of this summer and there's a fall. The 80s were completely different. If you ask college students their studies, uh, what would be more important in the 60s and 70s, uh, developing great economic freedom or developing a philosophy of life that makes you happy? Which one do you think people picked in the 60s or 70s, Russell? The philosophy. No question. And you still would, 
right? But 90% of the college students said that then. When they asked them in the 80s, 90s through the 2000s, the number one thing was practical skills, great, great economic freedom. So you entered another time. You went through the summer, you had a fall where it was easy. People were buying houses who had no income. It was just ridiculous. That's what happens. It gets insane. Stock markets go crazy. And then winter hits. And right now we're in winter. We're in a winter where every, by the way, winter doesn't mean every day is horrible. It just means there's more dark days than bright days, right? You can be in the middle of winter and have a beautiful day. But the theme is people get pissed more easily. They get angry. They're not in the enthusiastic, exciting springtime. They're not in the reaping fall time. They're in a very different mindset. And here's what happens. Institutions during the fall get really weak and, and nobody gives a damn about it. In the winter, when people get fearful, whether it's COVID, whether it's a war, whether it's economics, they want the government, a big portion of the people want them to be strong. And that starts the rise of the next problem in winter because totalitarianism happens like clockwork. Because when so much power concentrates into a few areas, whether it's corporations or governments, and it's both huge corporation and governments, you get these totalitarian things where there's no science behind what somebody's doing. And they're still promoting it. They're still pushing it. They're still doing it. And a huge portion of the population complies and often gets in conflict with a population that says this is crazy. And they want to, they want, they, they get them to fight each other so they don't pay attention to what they're doing. But here's what you need to know. No pandemic in the human history has lasted forever, nor will this one. No war in human history has lasted forever, nor will this one. The season will change. Your job is instead of freezing to death in winter, or freaking out, like I started my business when interest rates were 18% and inflation was going crazy. Guess what we're heading exactly towards? I don't know if it's gonna go that high, but we're already there. We're already moving through this mass inflation. There's economic patterns of spending that cause this to happen. So you gotta do well, if you can do well in winter, your spring, summer, and fall will be extraordinary. Because if you look at the Fortune 1000 companies, 62% of them were born in a winter. When I say winter, uh, either a recession or a depression. Disney during the depression, Exxon in depression, Federal Express in a recession, you know, Apple in a recession. I can go through the whole list. So if you do well then in life, in business, the rest of the seasons are easy. So this is our chance. So I can summarize everything I said in one little phrase. Try this and I'll shut up because I gave you a lot. Think of it this way. Good times create weak people. Weak people create bad times because they want everything, expect everything. They don't build anything anymore. They just anticipate I should be given everything. Bad times create strong people. Strong people create great times. That's the history of humanity if you go and look at it. So we're right now in winter, and by the way, I don't know for sure, but you study this, these patterns in history. We probably have another seven or eight years of this if the past history is correct. We're not through it. We might be through COVID soon but there's gonna be new challenges. These um, observable mechanical components, whether they are uh, planetary seasons or cultural rhythms, they're at the very end, you suggested a kind of rational relationship between the bad times creating good people and the good times creating weak people and the weak people creating bad times and the bad times. So that's a sort of a, uh, a rational, logical way that you can see the co corollary between, you know, that, the way that pattern is operating. What, though, is also suggested to me is that 
underlying observable mechanical reality are archetypal psychic forces that are less easy to read because they don't leave the same kind of traces and this again is a theme that comes up in a lot of your work and in the most recent book the for example most obviously through the placebo effect that if the you can tell the body to behave in a certain way and it will that in itself suggests and this is of course like total mainstream accepted science is that they're like a significant number of people 20 percent or whatever it is will respond positively simply to the suggestion so i'm very interested in how these two themes, uh, these two distinct ideas may be commensurate. The idea of an archetypal force that under, underlies observable reality that brings about patterns that we can observe. But most of us are so um, consumed by the challenges of daily reality that we're unable to step beneath or step beyond or access the ulterior forces, the giant within or whatever you want to call it, this idea that there is something that is within us that is um, imminent and inhered that can affect the outcome of your life, your own personal destiny, and also can affect, you know, finances in the examples you gave of these um, hugely successful financiers and entrepreneurs, but also can have political impacts as well, that if you're able to observe these cultural trends, these patterns, these seasons of which all manifest reality is an expression, then, um, then you can influence it. And evidently it's something that you're intuitively even intuitively i know you've worked harder than perhaps any living person so i'm not suggesting it's something that you've got on a plate but there are clearly um aspects of this that come in, like come naturally shall we say to you and um, I, I suppose what i feel is as a kind of an ideological and optimistic person when it comes to politics while you know standing back from the brink of utopia who knows what you know horrors the pursuit of utopia can bring about i i i often wonder how we can use this understanding to influence global outcomes, to change political and economic systems. Because in my mind, and I'd, I feel that your altruism speaks for itself with the projects that you support, have funded the billion meals that you've provided for Americans and, and your evident philanthropy. I'm interested in the alteration of systems. You know, like you sort of gave the example of the advent of agriculture as being the a pivotal moment in human history, perhaps the, the most pivotal moment in human history. I wonder how we might now take that, you know, perspective, that drone perspective, that 30,000 foot perspective to look at where humanity is going, to look at what outcomes we might better engineer in all of these fields one, the thing is tony one of the things that i consistently sense myself is that the incentive structures that are co-committant with capitalism seem sometimes in my opinion not to bring out the best in human beings advancing as they do a kind of individualistic mentality as as exemplified by that um you know like you said the 60s had a lot of kind of ideological, collectivized, unifying ideas, which ultimately become something that was quite individualistic in the 80s and brought a lot of prosperity. And I'm not suggesting that I know as much about these things as you do. But I feel that one of the challenges that we maybe face as a people is an ability now to start looking beyond institutional inst and, and establishment thinking right at the point when people, as you have said in your 
a description of these times are willing to yield to establishment ideals, are willing to yield to authoritarianism, a rise of authoritarianism that's so unusual for me to observe because of its aesthetic, because of how it looks and and because of whom it purports to be acting on behalf of the vulnerable, the people that need protecting. It's something that I'm kind of confused by. And I'm wondering, you know, as a person that has advised world leaders, how you feel that um, this may play out politically while acknowledging that your previous answer rec was a sort of a description of that there is a seasonal reality that can't really be overcome. I just wonder what you feel well, politically specifically. I, I, I want to clarify. Thank you for that. First of all, there's, you're triggering so many things in me. I almost want to write them all down so I don't forget. But I think um, let me address three pieces of what you just said there. And I'm just jotting myself a note because I don't want to forget here. Um, and I'm going to write this third one here just for a second, which is for those of you listening. So, Tony's so let's, so let's talk about this notes. way first, because I don't want to give you the impression that the seasons means you have no control. Yes. Right. You can have the season going on and you can be in the middle of like, you know, I live here in Florida. You know, wintertime is pretty nice here. No, that was clear because you said the snowboarding and the fires. I didn't make that mistake that you can't make the yeah. best of it. I didn't, yeah, yeah. you were clear but about But also, that. I want you to know it's not like um, the same, while there's a mass number of people going through the hypnotic frame of fear, there's also people that have hit their threshold that had been weak, meaning just accepting things as they are, just focusing on their own life and letting all this shit happen, who now suddenly are saying, this is bullshit, I'm standing up. So, you can accelerate the tempo of the season if enough people wake up. And awake is taking personal responsibility and saying, I am part of the solution. There may be some institutional challenges, but I have the individual capacity to combine with others. So now it's not just me as an individual to create significant change. And so, uh, you know, it, I, what triggered me when you're saying that popped in my head was, I think it's called the Milgram study. I don't know if you know, the, everyone will remember. Remember the study where people respond to authority and a guy in a white coat and there's a person on the other side with shocks on them and they're telling them to go higher and higher and higher it was a study done to see how could the things happen the atrocities in world war ii is what kind of triggered them to want to do this study and the person as they get higher the shocks got stronger and there's a point on there that was in red that someone could die from 67 percent of the people responded to the intensity of the authority figure to take people to a point where they could have died. Now it was all actors screaming, it was all fake, but they didn't know that. That, that makes you think humanity is in bad shape. And a lot of people quote that study, but they leave out the most important, I think, inside of that study. When only 10% of the people objected, verbally objected, vocally objected, physically objected. When one, excuse me, when one person did that, only 10% of the people are willing to put the electricity up to that level. So we are not sitting here, I'm not, I want to give you the impression we're sitting here in a place where we can do nothing, we just got to accept it the way it is, far from it, that's the furthest from my philosophy, but you need to recognize the pattern in my opinion, so you can start to use the pattern, not let the pattern use you, and then start to create new patterns. And so the bottom line is, there is a shift that you can make, and yes, there are archetypes, and that's more understanding patterns. And the more you understand the archetypes, even within yourself, I mean, I'll give you an example, I, you know, a completely different context, but just, I think it's an interesting example. So, you know, I, I worked with a UFC uh, fighter who's pretty famous and, you know, he had a, he had been winning and winning and winning. He's Irish. You get the clue of who I'm talking about here. And, um, and Conor McGregor and Conor comes to me and, you know, he lost this big fight to a 
But the real challenge was he got so angry, he lost the use of all his abilities. And so when I think of archetypes, I start with the archetypes within myself or within other people. And I say that when someone is stuck, like you know, we're stuck emotionally, we're stuck in a relationship, we're stuck you know, economically, whenever we're stuck, it's because we're not using all our resources, we're only using a certain part of ourselves. So when I sat down with Connor, and I could share this because he shared it, um, otherwise I wouldn't be telling you the story. And I sat down with Connor and I was like, listen, I said, tell me, I'm, I'm gonna give you four archetypes. There are some more than four, but let me give you these four archetypes. I know it sounds weird, uh, but as a fighter, but as I tell them to you, I want you to tell me where these archetypes might live in you. I want you to make the sound of it. And the archetypes I used, for example, was a warrior to start with. And his warrior was full tilt. Now he's always had his warrior, but the people that know anything about the UFC know he was called Mystic Mac. He could sometimes see before a person threw the punch, where it was gonna come from, counter it. And it was like magical. So the warrior in him was one part of him. He got so angry, all he used was the warrior all the time and his warrior was exhausted. So I had him figure out where that was in his body. That sounds weird, but embody it, a sound of it. And then I had the warrior coach him. The warrior says all you need to do, and he gave certain advice. Then I said, let's find another part of you. There's a magician in you. There's a part of you that sees the punch before it happens. There's a part of you that smiles inside. He isn't all pissed and angry because he knows it's all perception. The whole thing can change with one punch. In one moment, the whole game can change. All of life can change in a moment. So the magician is the wise one who isn't angry, who can rely on the warrior when he needs him, but also can come up with a new perception, the new vision to change it all. And when he did that, his whole body changed, his breathing changed, his face changed, the, the smile he's famous for when he's really being crazy and playful started to show up. And he got totally different advice from his magician, radically different. Then I said, let's find the lover in you. And what he found out was, you know, he wasn't loving fighting anymore. He wasn't like, because he'd been so uptight and angry with the loss he had, the person he was fighting, all those things. And then we went to the sovereign. And, and again, there are many archetypes. I just used these four with him. The sovereign, the king or queen inside you. The one that has already won all the battles. The one who knows as a vision larger than themselves. The one who isn't just doing it for accolades. A true king or queen is a servant. Hero comes from servo in Latin, which means servant. A true hero is a servant. And this person serves because they don't have the fear of trying to prove themselves. They know who the hell they are. And he got completely different advice. And so anyway, long story short, asked him for afterwards, he's like, this is the best I've felt in years. This is incredible. And he went out the next day against this man named Cowboy. And Cowboy got the first punch and I like held my breath. Oh my God. And then he saw this opening, the Mystic Mac, and he butted him and took him out in about 45 seconds. It was unbelievable. He called me in the ring with him. It was a nice celebration. But here's what I love most. It was different Connor. Because Connor, you, people see Connor, and especially if Connor drinks alcohol, which right now I understand he's saying he's not going to do for this next fight. But here's what's really interesting. Connor all of a sudden transformed, and he goes over to Cowboy and hugs him and thanks him for the fight. And then he, Cowboy has a grandma that was like a mom to him. He went over and hugged her, not for the cameras. And then when he was interviewed after, he was super complimentary. He said, Cowboy's got some records I don't have. This man's amazing. And I'm just was very fortunate. Humility, a different Connor, because he was using all the parts of him, not just one. When we're stuck, we're using one part. We're either stuck in our minds in some past or present or future, 
or we're stuck with an image in our mind or a sound or a feeling, or we're stuck focusing on ourselves instead of other people. And so we don't have all of our resources. I could give you 20 stuck patterns, but they all can change when we expand who and where we are. Now you said a third thing about capitalism. <laughs> I'm a capitalist. And, and, and you and I have had slightly different views in this area. The same view in that what we care about most is the people. But the system, I don't think capitalism is a perfect system by any stretch of the imagination. And like any system, it can be abused and it has been abused. But it's the best system I've seen. But capitalism unchecked, unbalanced is a real problem. There's, when, when you don't have compassionate capitalism, when it's just only for the economics, that's what's happening with companies going to China and doing what they're doing. And unfortunately, when you get enough people involved with any system, they're going to people that abuse a system and people use it. I don't do it shit for the money. I know you know me well enough to know it's true. I do it really. I have all these things. I'm, you know, I fed 850 million people in the last seven years. I said I'm going to commit to feed a billion people because I was fed when I was 11 years old. I went to, you know, Africa and I go to India. India is a really great example. I see all these kids dying of waterborne diseases. So I provide a quarter of a million people with fresh water. I'm working to get it to a million people. I, you know, I have a plane. I'm very privileged in that. I'm very lucky to be able to do it. It's an incredible tool. But I'm not an idiot. So I found out my carbon footprint's about 3,000 trees a year. So I said, screw that. I didn't just do carbon you know, credits. I did enough carbon credits for 10 years of travel. Now it's probably 30 because I travel so little now because of what's happened with COVID. But I also planted, I said, I'm gonna plant 100 million trees. I'm up to 71 million trees. I play the game of business because it's a spiritual game to me. It's a game that every religion, every spiritual approach teaches at some level, which is, do more for others than you do for yourself. Don't take, give. And if I can give and give and give, I get the juice of giving. I get the excitement of it. And so I've learned to use business as a tool because the only way you win in business is do more for others than anybody else in the marketplace. Now, there are monopolies that can manipulate things so they aren't doing more for others. I'm aware of that. But it's not the majority of what happens. And so I look at that and go, is it a great system? Is it a perfect system? Hell no. But is it better than you know people in a communist country or socialist country? The answer is yes. And will there be new perfection? Yes. Now we're we're being every problem is being magnified now by technology, because technology is allowing people to monitor us, control us, our communication, cut us off, deplatform people. It's allowing certain people to accumulate a wealth that is just ridiculous beyond anything that could be spent in decades or years or lifetimes. But all these things are temporary. They're part of a system that will be shaken up because when things get unjust enough, as we all know, people react and respond. And hopefully it won't have to get to the point of real problems. I want to address the last thing you said. And, so, and by the way, I'm not a, I'm not a, I believe anything can be misused. Electricity can save lives, it can light up a city or it can kill someone. There are people that use it to kill people, but more people use it for good. And so I look at it from a standpoint of there is no, quote, perfection in the real world. There's like if I take off to fly to go from here to Hawaii, I'm a pilot. Most people don't realize it, but you're off course about 95 percent of the time. But you don't go, oh, my God, we're off course. Oh, we're all going to die. You just correct. Oh, my God. No, you just correct, correct, correct. And you land on a dime. The people that have all these reactions are missing out on the beauty of life because they're overreacting because they don't have perspective of pattern recognition, utilization and creation. Last thing you mentioned, and I think it's really important to mention around health, just as a good measurable sample of what the mind can do. 
So, you know, I talk about in the book, you know, the fact that placebos, we all know about placebos. They were discovered in World War II, by the way, not that long ago. And how they were discovered is a doctor was treating people and, you know, they're going, if you don't give them, you know, mer uh, uh, morphine, they go into shock. Besides the pain, they go into shock and they die. And they ran out of uh, morphine. So a nurse actually is responsible, a woman, right? She came up with the solution spontaneously because everyone's freaking out all these men were going to die. So she took a saline solution and said, Doc, here's the morphine. He thought it was morphine. He injected it with the expectation and the look on his face and the certainty this was going to help the guy. And guess what? None of the people they injected with this, he found out afterwards, not a single one went into shock. And many of them were out of pain and were given no drug. So he went after World War II, he went back to Harvard, and he's the doctor that started all these studies that we now usually compare to a placebo. But what a lot of people don't know is placebos are often more effective than the drug itself. You just never hear about that because there's no money in that, right? But here's what's interesting. The bigger the placebo intervention, the bigger response to the mind and the body. In other words, if I give you a little pill, we might get a little response. If I give you a big pill, a larger one. If we give you an injection, the belief system is even stronger. They've even done, they do false surgeries. The Veterans Administration here in the US took arthroscopic surgeries and decided to do a third of the people fake surgeries to see what would happen. So most people did the surgery, had their tendons done, but a third of them, they cut them open and then just sewed it back up. They didn't do anything to them. They just left a scar there and the nurses didn't know the difference, right? They weren't, the ones that took care of them didn't know. A year and a half afterwards, uh, it's in the book, I can't remember the exact percentage, but the number of people who had not had the surgery but thought they did were doing so much better than the people with the surgery that the VA stopped paying for those knee surgeries. You know, it's more than a placebo, Russell. Think of it this way. Hubbard's done studies where they give you a red pill and they tell you it's an amphetamine, which means your body's going to speed up, but they give you a barbiturate. They don't give you a bread pill. They give you an actual drug that's supposed to slow your body down and the people's bodies increase just like an amphetamine, even though they're given a drug that does the opposite and they've done the opposite side as well. There are studies, I've got a friend, Dr. Ellen Langer, who's you know one of the first people that came up with mindfulness at Harvard, really brilliant lady. And in the book, I described them, but she has some studies where she shows about how people heal based on belief systems, but also aging. So she took a group of 70 year olds, took them to the Catskills of New York, literally built the facility there where they cleaned up the place and made everything from 35 years before radio stations old tvs old they showed old shows everyone was told to speak in first person as if it was 35 years earlier and if you're in the book it has a list of everything that changed their eyesight got better their blood pressure went down i mean they looked younger just because that is the power of the mind norman cousins was one of the first guys in psychoneuroimmunology he was a UCLA professor. I was privileged enough to interview him when I was 24 years old. He did my firewalk with me is how it happened because he was fascinated by the mind-body effect. And so I got to spend time with him and I did an interview with him. I used to have a, not a podcast, but a little interview format I used to do called Power Talk. And so I interviewed him. And as I interviewed him, he, he told me all these stories. Now, first of all, he was you know, diagnosed with a deadly disease. And he said, I'm not gonna do the traditional approach. I think I can change my immune system by laughing. And so all he did for weeks and weeks and weeks, several months, is when he started to feel this massive pain, he would turn on these you know, old movies and laugh his ass off and the pain would go away and then eventually his body healed. He wrote a book called Anatomy of an Illness, which 
Now there's a building dedicated to him, UCLA. He's kind of like the father, one of the fathers of psychoneuroimmunology, how your mind can affect your immune system. Now, by the way, the CDs, we can make ourselves sick with our mind. So he told me a story about, you said I could tell you dozens, but he told me a story of a football game in America that he went to. And then suddenly somebody got super sick. They projectile vomiting. And the doctor on staff ran and tried to figure out what the source was. And the person had just gotten um, a Coca-Cola out of the vending machine. And so the doc thought there was nothing else he'd done different that day. He must be poisoned by that. There must be something wrong with the vending machine. So they announced across the loudspeaker, do not drink anything out of the vending machine. Well, lots of people already people had projectile vomiting. It looks like a movie, he said. People all over, vomiting, throwing up. There were 12 ambulances there taking people back and forth to the hospital. About 45 minutes later, they did the analysis and found there was nothing wrong with the vending machine. They announced it, and suddenly, within 20 to 30 minutes, everybody is well. So the CDC, I put this in the book because most people wouldn't believe it unless they see the study. Everything in my book, by the way, is documented. It's none of it's me. The CDC, most of us know that the number one factor in dying of COVID is age, right? 80 years old, usually. But the number one factor outside of age is obesity. You know, 80%, 79.8% of the people that have died of COVID have been obese, right? Or have are majorly overweight, something we could do something about, but no one talks about. But here's what CDC said the number one, number two factor was of you dying of COVID, anxiety and fear. And yet, what have we done in our media continuously, right? It's, it's Media people are good people. They're not bad people, but they're trying to do their job. Their job is to make their shareholders richer. In order to do that, they need your attention and fear sells. So fear pushes people. Fear causes people to go to a place. And when you get fear, it changes your immunology. Just anger. There's a study I put in the book. You know, if you're angry for 20 minutes, really intensely angry, it'll shut down your immune system for up to three and a half to four hours. So our minds have such tremendous power. That's why in the book, I teach you all things to do for more energy and strength and the greatest breakthroughs. But then in the end, if you want a quality of life, you got to take control of your mind. Yes. Tony, this is so magnificent to have the opportunity to speak with you. Thank you so much for your work on this latest book. Thank you for your the whole canon of your work. Thank you for the treasure of your regard and your attention. It's uh, so beautiful to be in your company and your uh, never less than immersive light, you mighty man. Thank you so much for coming on Under the Skin. I love you, Tony. I love it too, Russell. Thanks so much for having me on. And I look forward to hearing the impact this has on you and your family and hopefully from your viewers as well. Blessings to you, brother. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to that episode of Under the Skin with Tony Robbins. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you've learned from it. I hope you will consider buying that book. Certainly it's had a fantastic impact on my life and I've got nothing but love for Tony Robbins, the great man. Django, Django, Django. Have you got anything to add? Oh, we're at the end, don't we? Huh? I don't think so. Come see me on tour. Sign up to the mailing list. If you enjoyed, Tony... Listen. What should we do? Listen to Tony Robbins' previous podcast. Why though, Jen? Yeah, that was um, a funny podcast. Was it? Because well, the first time you'd interacted with him, and I think you really wanted to try and get a word back in. It was like a, some. Then this of... time, I just like just yeah. enjoy it. Yeah. All right. Why Wim Hof? Because they both like going in plunge pools. They both like going in plunge <laughs> pools. <laughs> they both That's how your you mind to... works. Yeah, they both inspired you to get in cold water, right? You're out of control. Keep checking my YouTube channel. You've got quite a good memory, Jen. Keep checking out my YouTube channel for new new videos and stuff. And thanks for listening to Under the Skin on Luminary. Luminary.